everyone. My name's Michael Kaiser. And I'm John Wilson. And welcome to another episode of Make Ours Marvel. This is episode 172 of the podcast. It is taking you on a journey through all of the published adventures of the Marvel superhero universe from the beginning. We started with the Fantastic Four number one in 1961. And last episode, we finished another calendar year, 1967, except technically not really, because we are covering the very first... Marvel UK Storybook Annual that was published sometime in 1967, usually in the fall. And I don't know how much... Well, you know what? Before I get into that, we're also going to talk about Sergeant Fury 52, Strange Tales 167, Thor 150, and the one-shot Iron Man and Submariner. Um, I don't know how apocryphal this is or how much it actually happened. But I always associate these hardcover, oversized uh, annuals that are doing some sort of media tie-in fiction as Christmas gifts that oh. kids would run down and see these under the tree. Okay. So while they're available in the fall, sometimes as early as September, uh, they often were held as Christmas presents for the kids, which is why I saved this for the end of the year, because that's just where I think of when I think of the UK annuals. It's so British. It's a very like very like, like they they misspell so many words and like this reminded me of actually those Doctor Who annuals which mm-hmm. I know you've read same company same company absolutely you could totally tell so to set the stage if you are a child of the United Kingdom you have two ways of reading Marvel comics you can get the imported editions so like the actual comics the US is getting a little bit behind schedule um, and they they actually print different covers with a with a, a uh, UK price on them, or you can buy one of the UK published books that reprints strips. Um, Autumn's publishes lots of titles like Smash or Terrific or Pow, and we covered a Hulk story from one of those a while back. The thing with those reprints is that they are way behind the current US books. So if you're only reading Marvel stories that way, you're probably still back in what we thought of as 1963 or 1964. As far mm-hmm. as continuity goes. Um, so the writers of these stories definitely appear to only have, for the most part, there's one notable exception. Looks like they only have like the first handful of stories for each of these characters to write from. Right. But, um, but yeah, so we're not going to be reading stuff here that's like all up to date with continuity. But anyways, um, I. Well, no- nothing about it particularly says it couldn't have happened either. Yeah, right. But uh, Agreed. Um, We're not going to spend a heck of a lot of time. We are going to go through each story. Just we're going to kind of do it in a little bit of rapid fire. And since I am up in the recap order, I'll be recapping the stories from this. So um, we have Fight and Fury first, um, which is an Ant-Man story. We haven't had an Ant-Man story in years. So if you've seen the first Ant-Man film, you've basically read the setup for this story. A guy spends five years in prison. He gets key, he gets out of prison. He can't get any honest work. So he goes back to his crime buddies. But it's not Scott Lang. It's some other random dude, Danny Fury. Uh, one difference is that fighting Dan Fury is actually innocent of his crime, whereas Scott Lang actually did his deed. Um, and from here, of course, the story diverges a bit. Dan, uh, his crime buddies actually frame him for another burglary. And he's going to get in trouble again. He's in the process of getting in trouble, and Ant-Man threatens one of the buddies with eternal ants and forces him to confess to framing Dan Fury. So Danny gets pardoned, 
and decides instead of trying to find a job, he's going to go join the Marines. Yeah. Yeah. This was just like the, uh, you know, back in the day when the best Ant-Man stories were basically Batman stories. Mm-hmm. That's what this reminded me of. This felt like a very much like a Batman story, you know? Checking in on yeah. the guy you put away, making sure he stays on the right path, helping him out, and a lot of and ant bat gadgets. A lot of ant stuff, and I, I really like the descriptions of his tininess. I think they really mm-hmm. got the idea of an Ant-Man story. Mm-hmm. It was actually kind of refreshing after not having had Ant-Man for so long. Honestly, I think that was probably the best story out of all these stories. So Ant-Man wins <laughs> this book, maybe. Maybe, maybe, yeah. Um, there was a reference to 100 quid in 1967 to pay somebody off. That would be like $1,500 today, which is, you know, not a bad payoff. Mm-hmm. And there's a moment where he stands in front of a projector to cast his shadow on a wall to get somebody's attention to freak out Danny. And I love that moment. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's one of the better stories, but Ant-Man is barely in it. He's like, he's in it, but he's always on the sidelines. He's kind of Jiminy mm-hmm. Cricketing his way through this story, just influencing stuff here and there. But I enjoyed it. Yeah. Uh, should we go into Howl in the Night? Howl in the Night. There is a um, there is a game board caught in the web. I did not try to play caught in the web. It's a Spider-Man themed game. How in the Night is a Namor story. It's particularly a young Namor story. While he is 16 years old, an earthquake wrecks the giant domed palace. Yes, the domed palace. It's a it's an air filled dome um, where the emperor lives in the air. Uh, and the, the earthquake doesn't endanger anyone's life because Atlanteans can breathe in the air as well as in the water. But the problem is all the computers and the animals and the plants that need to stay dry in Atlantis <laughs> are destroyed. Mm-hmm. Um, so some people are injured, including the emperor, and their blood draws the attention of like 50 sharks. Namor holds them off so everyone can flee to another dome full of air. And Namor follows them to safety. The Emperor's advisors tell Namor he should go attack the surface world, specifically a lighthouse. And if that sounds familiar, it's because we've talked about this story before. So Namor attacks a lighthouse manned by an old man and a young boy. We haven't really talked about this story before. It just feels feel like that very first Namor story. Um, inside the lighthouse, uh, like I said, are an old man and a young boy. Namor sneaks past them. He wrenches the light equipment out of the lighthouse and throws it into the sea. He then dives into the sea after the stuff, but he actually follows the exact same trajectory and hits his head on the stuff he just threw into the water. He wakes up to find the old man and the boy taking care of him in a boat. He feels guilty for having attacked them and they're helping him. So he jumps out, finds a large shell in the water and takes it back to the lighthouse. And he uses it to sound warnings to an oncoming ship. Like blows the shell mm-hmm. like a conch shell. Deciding that maybe humans are pretty chill, he dives back for home. Um, deciding that the invading warriors might be better suited to rebuilding the destroyed city instead of invading the surface world. Yeah, all these all these stories are tech stories. I don't know if we've made that clear, but they're all uh-huh. tech stories with like with peppering of uh, uh, imagery to support it. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of like back in the golden age day when they had they had they had the oblig- obligatory uh, obligatory uh, text to make it a magazine or whatever. Right. Um, the art's not great. I kind of feel like it's drawn by people who had never heard of comic books before or something because mm-hmm. it's not really dynamic or anything. Um, but the reason I bring it up for this is because it looks like Superboy is holding Neptune's 
trident, which was like the first story arc of whatever, <laughs> where he was looking for that trident. So did they have right. that trident when he was a kid? Or do all tridents look like that? Because that's a pretty unique look. It's a very specific trident. And the crown is pretty generic looking crown. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I do feel like this was lifted from that story, mm-hmm. which is a little bit weird. Um, I don't uh, think the, I don't think the yeah, art is too bad, but it is like, you know... Yeah, commercial I mean, art, okay. churn, churn, you know, churned out right. for a children's book. Every once in a while, there's like an obvious ape of like Jack Kirby or something like that. But um, do we know who the emperor is? They just call him the emperor. But like who was in charge when Namor was a child? His grandfather. Okay. His so mother, grand- Princess Fen, was his uh, was the daughter of the emperor. And I remember there being a golden age story where the emperor dies and the throne actually passes to Namor. Oh. Why he's, Still Prince Namor after that? I don't know, except maybe we for We never branding. have figured that out. And yeah. none of our loyal listeners have written in to figure it out with us. But uh, we have wondered in the past why they ever have oxygen domes, period. And I kind of do like the idea that, you know, certain technology requires electricity maybe. So, you know, can't get wet. I feel like if you live in the water, though, you're going to make I technology know. that is safe in the water. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and they have had like – electrical powered looking things just going around in the water. So I'm not sure if that's a really great answer, but anytime there's ever been an air pressured area, it's like to make it safe for surface people, not for themselves. I Um, guess, but we've had them. We've, I don't know. Yeah. We've seen them just like hanging out in bubbles with nobody else that needs the bubble. So I don't know either. I think so. Or it's hard to say, because sometimes the art just doesn't make anything look like water, I guess. See, that's what I think is that like, I just assume that the water is everywhere, but maybe those places where they're walking on the floor, maybe there is no water there. No, because they can't breathe out of water. We, we've had that established. Oh. These, they can't survive outside of water for more like an hour. So how do they run their toasters? Then? That makes no sense. I don't know. Maybe they don't have toast bread in the water. I mean, <laughs> Well, I mean, this story says that they have electrical things that need a bubble. So how do they run them if they oh. can't breathe in the bubble? I don't know. Um, so I mentioned the lighthouse. It definitely reminded me of Marvel Comics one. Um, uh, it's uh-huh. it's nothing like that except that Namor gets sent by the Emperor to a lighthouse. Nothing else to say, but just reminded me very much of that. Well, that was my um, comment too. Is the end of this story? Little Superboy is like maybe the surface dwellers are okay, but by right. Marvel Comics number one, he doesn't think that. So he got over these lighthouse guys, I guess. Last thought is I've never sailed. I have never lighthoused. But I get the idea that using sound as a warning on the open water is not going to work because sound like echoes and you can't really tell where sound is coming from when you're on the water. Whereas a light is like, avoid that light. That is on a land and you don't want to go there. And if we've seen Pete's Dragon, which I assume we all have, if you need the lighthouse, it's because it's storming and dark and loud and crashy and thundery. Mm Mm-hmm. And, and yeah, someone blowing a horn is not going to help you. So um, if you ever wanted um, Fantastic Four to own slaves, turn into this next story. <laughs> this is a horrible story. Anyway. The, the Chains of Abdul Ray. Marvel's first family has taken a vacation trip to the African continent. We open on their unexpected encounter with a slave market in a desert town in what is possibly the country of Algeria. Sue Storm is aghast at slavery, but the boys mm-hmm. don't really see what they can do to help. So Sue bids on the last slave on the stand, an eight-year-old boy. 
And whenever she offers up a bit of $15, nobody outbids her. So Sue Storm finds herself the reluctant owner of a slave. She immediately sets the boy free, or at least tells him he is free, but the boy trails after her because, um, you know, he's been abducted from his home far away. He has nowhere else to go. So Susan's pretty mad about this whole situation. She goes back and attacks the slave trader, but the slave trader, his men capture her and put her in chains. The other three members of the team are also taken, and they're all chained up, and they're all in a caravan setting out across the desert. But there's something wrong. They can't use their powers to get free. Somehow their powers aren't working. That night, they arrive at a um, their camp for the evening. It's some sort of um, structure. The slave trader takes them to the top of a tall building, and it's going to push them off to their deaths because um, white slaves don't sell well. Johnny volunteers to jump off the roof first, and so he asks that his chains be removed. He jumps without the chains. He's able to flame on. He proceeds to put the fear of Allah into the slave trader, and slave trader promises to stop his trade and, like, all the slavery everywhere. Yuck. Yeah. Yuck, contrived, trite, out of character. That was just a horrible story all around. It's pretty bad. Um, Susan Storm has now owned a slave at some point in her life, which is just not something you want to say out loud. Um, It's a good thing Johnny was right about the chains, because if he hadn't been... Well, it's pretty obvious it was the chains, but like also contrived that somehow these... Whatever the material of those chains renders them useless... Yeah, yeah, their powers don't work. Don't tell Dr. Doom that, I guess. Right. Um, The one thing I did like, uh, it's not so extensive as to be scary for a young reader, Mm -hmm. but I do think the writer conveys the fear that these four feel at being unable to use their powers, and they are faced with a very different kind of life than what they had started with that morning. I don't buy for a second that if Thing was walking along and he saw some woman being sold as a slave, that he'd just be like, well, I'm on vacation. I don't want to be bothered. He's too hot-headed <sighs> for that. He would go over there and destroy everything yeah. and cause an international incident. And I also don't buy that, like, they could they could chain up uh, Invisible Woman and he slaps her in the face and, like, Reed Richards doesn't threaten to bring down the entire cosmos on anybody. That's, like, his thing. You hurt my woman and I, I go crazy. And he instead he just laughed and said, oh, well, let's get out of here. That was weird. It's all I'm, weird. I'm also torn between the cringe tropey factor of slavery from being happening with, you know, uh, Muslim peoples, Arabic, Moorish, African, North African, mm-hmm. you know, cultures, because that is a trope and it's not a good one. But also there are places in the world where criminal human trafficking is still happening. So if this is a crime, then it's being depicted as such. Well, according to Reed, it's not a crime, which is why they can't do anything about it. But that also was trite because now it's like. You only got three pages to solve slavery? That's a big problem. There should be a book. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We're just going to scare them real bad and, and all of our problems are over? Okay. So then there's a Captain America maze. Um, there's a of very common we did thing. that one. We'd, yeah. There's a page of Men of Ideas um, where it has like pictures of people and stuff that they did. We get a two-page origin of Spider-Man, which we're not really talking about in detail. At least I don't need to accept the last two paragraphs. I really want to talk about this. Um, Before you get to the last two paragraphs, I also noticed they omitted his responsibility. Oh, for the death of Uncle Ben? Yeah. Yeah. They made it like just an accident that happened, and he's like, oh, golly, shucks, gee whiz, but not his fault. Yeah, they, they chalk it up to he was off too busy doing other things while Uncle uh-huh. Ben died, but not the whole 
I let, let this guy go. Yeah, let the killer go part. Kind of crucial. But yeah, those last two paragraphs were freaking hilarious. He is a maladjusted adolescent, overtly neurotic. He has a terrible identity problem, a marked inferiority complex, and a fear of women. He is antisocial, racked with Oedipal guilt, and accident prone. Ill luck has pursued him since the day he was bitten by that fateful spider. His shyness has led him to adopt a cocky attitude, which so alienated other superheroes that none of them will have anything to do with him. Despite all this, Spider-Man is the most popular anti-hero of our time. Now, I'm not saying this is like super accurate, but most of these points have at least a germ of truth in them. And I found it hilarious how much they exposed. I was going to say like, some of it's true for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Maladjusted adolescent. Um, Overly neurotic. He definitely worries about everything. Mm-hmm. Inferiority complex. Now, fear of women. I'm sure he that. got yeah. the gumption to ask Sally out, but you could tell it was very difficult for him. He did not feel comfortable doing it. And it's only after he gets the spider bite that he starts to feel more confident in himself. Yeah. Um, well, I guess it, d- it depends on when they're talking about him. Because accident prone does not seem like a thing that applies anymore. Right. And since the spider bite is mentioned at the beginning of the second paragraph, I took the first paragraph as mostly Peter Parker in general before being Spider-Man. Okay. So it definitely big, applies better then. He's a big cranky nerd is what they're trying to say. Mm-hmm. And even as Spider-Man, we've talked about before how in most of his guest appearances in other books, mm-hmm. Spider-Man does not come off very well at all. No, nobody likes him. Nobody likes him. The Avengers but, invited him, but like didn't want to. <laughs> it's funny that this is the at in this stage of the of the universe, this is the idea of an antihero, mm. Spider Man. Because it gets a lot worse, people. Yeah. I mean, Spider Man's a freaking Boy Scout compared to like, you know, Punisher or Wolverine or whoever else. Cable, Deadpool. Yeah, he's not a he's an antihero in the sense that he is not a hero with general heroic tropes, but um, anyways, the fire raisers is our Spider-Man story. While out for a walk, Peter Parker follows a crowd to an abandoned building on fire. There's this young insurance salesman in the crowd, like handing out brochures. Hey, it's a fire. People are dying. Here's my insurance card for mm-hmm. Phoenix insurance company. Um, he's definitely using the fire to drum up sales. The building that is burning it turns out not to be so abandoned, though, when an old man smashes a window in the top story from the inside. Problem is the ladders the firemen have brought won't reach the top story, and the man is too scared to jump. So, Peter Parker springs in action. He changes to Spider-Man in an alley, he braves the flames, he finds the unconscious night watchman, and he gets into safety. But then, a week passes, Peter is bothered about that insurance salesman. Should have been worried about losing money on disasters. So he decides to go check out the Phoenix Insurance Company, goes to their offices and discovers an arson gang planning their last big job. So he rounds them all up and calls the police. And I never really understood how anybody was going to make money off of anything in this. That's a good point. Wow. I didn't even think about that either. I guess he's starting fires, which make people panic and think they need insurance. So they buy insurance from him. Oh, I didn't even think about him maybe starting that fire. Of course, oh, there are some gangs. Yeah, yeah. He's starting the fire. I was just trying to figure out how that helps him make money. So that's that's what it is. It's just a big sales gimmick. So they're not burning buildings that they have insured. No, they're burning no, no. buildings to drum up insurance sales. And then when people stand around going, "Oh my God, what what, what if that happened to me?" He comes up with his mm-hmm. card and says, "Hey, 
hey, I will insure your building. That was an okay story. The only comment I have was I thought it was hilarious that they had this idea that he eats his victims, which I'm not sure I've ever heard about in the comic book. Like that was a kind of a cool Batman myth thing, you know? And then he actually uses that to his advantage and like pretends to eat his victims to get that guy to confess, which was fun. Yeah. People are scared about Spider-Man being actually spidery. Yeah. Also, whenever he gets ready to go save the day, he has a mental process. This might not be how spiders would react to fire, but Spider-Man does not have spidery weaknesses. Right. Um, Except for his disgust of wasps. Yes, yes. Okay, so after a weird, really weird Fantastic Four board game that's like kind of like the trouble game, everyone has their own starting point. They're all trying to get to the home. Sorry. Um, Is it Sorry. Yeah, it looks just like Sorry, I think. Yeah, I think Sorry and Trouble both have that idea. And a series of puzzles, we get the cushioned clash, an Iron Man story. All right, all right, all right. Tony Stark has this yeah. unhappy meeting with his board of directors. Mm-hmm. Four product shipments have been hijacked by somebody mysterious, and they are losing money fast. So Tony Stark tells them to beef up security, and he trots off to find his Iron Man armor. Turns out, Iron Man has been putting together clues about this bloated bandit who's been hijacking stuff and figures out where the bloated bandit is probably lurking. He finds the guy in a cushy rubber suit, hence the bloatedness, in a small complex near some caves on the shoreline. They fight it out with the bloated bandit using all these weapon traps, but eventually Iron Man just scorches his rubber suit and unmasked him to reveal the city transportation head who recently started asking for reports about all the shipping coming through town, which seemed really normal for a head of transportation, but he used it to his advantage. After the arrest, Tony goes back to the board. They're still meeting and he hears that Iron Man has solved all their problems. And they're like, you're so useless, Tony. We should have Iron Man. I'm not a huge mystery buff, but it seems to me if there's a whodunit, you're supposed to introduce the who. Ahead of time. Mm-hmm. So that it matters when you find out they've done it. Right. <laughs> this so is that one was kind of weird. Unmask, and it's a face you've never seen before. That, All right. Yeah. Uh, and he looked really kind of funky, and they, they call – like, literally his name is bloated, but then they also describe him as, like, waddling around and stuff. It's like, this guy is not the most menacing Iron Man villain. How is he actually successfully hijacking stuff if he's wearing a giant stick marshmallow man suit? If you're an Iron Man fan out there and you don't know who the bloated whatever is, you're failing. Um, this is the one story that felt like the reader, the writer had actually read some Iron Man comics. Okay. he mentions Titanium Man. Oh. Which actually gives this some connection to continuity. And that's down the line a little bit. Yeah, that ti- uh, Titanium Man first appeared in middle of 1965. Oh, that early. Wow. Well, there was the two Titanium Man stories with the big, like, unending arc that connects them. Where, like, Happy Hogan finds out that he's Iron Man at the beginning and then doesn't do anything till it till the end. I don't know. Right. Yeah. Um, you think he'd reference Crimson Dynamo instead because it's so old. But Right. I was thinking about we don't really get to see much Tony Stark businessman in the Iron Man comics. When he's no. at his facilities, he's just, like, walking around being the boss. That one but, guy in this story that is annoyed by Tony reminded me of that bird thing that was going on for a little while. Yeah. Senator Bird hating Tony but loving Iron Man. I think this story actually name draws Senator Bird too to like show, hey, I do know what I'm talking about. Kind of the same idea. So that's like the only time we've ever had in the comics like a an idea that Tony is kind of uh, a partier. 
Well, I guess mm-hmm. he dated 28 women at the same time, too. Or is currently right. doing that. And the uh, the names of all the directors were super stuffy, and I loved it. Cyrus mm-hmm. P. Keeling, Elmer Q. Quincy, and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. It's great. Uh, Tomb of Terror. E. So, World War II Captain America story. Yeah. Britain's Desert Rats Division, a real thing, are preparing to go against Erwin Rommel's Africa Corps, also a real thing, when they mm. get word of a preemptive counterattack. The officers are talking about this and the fact that Captain America has wrapped up some undercover operations in Italy and is on his way to help. Cut to Cap and Bucky speeding across the desert when they come across a Nazi convoy headed in their same direction. So this must be the attack on the Allied forces that they heard was going to happen. They try to go around and make it to their base, but the Nazis see them and attack. During the attack, our heroes get sprayed with gas and taken captive. Uh, Captain America wakes up to face German Major Lieberhardt. He uh, is in a secret German base within one of the ancient pyramids. This is in Northern Africa, of course, so there are ancient pyramids. And the Nazis also have a V-2 rocket here, hidden in the pyramid, but ready to launch. Lieberhardt is also going to put Cap and Bucky in their own little rockets to launch alongside it. But Cap and Bucky get free and fight their way out. They can't stop the rocket being launched, but Cap is able to change its targeting controls, sending it straight for Rommel's Africa Corps, um, which didn't actually get blown up by a missile, so I don't know. Maybe it fizzles out on the way. <laughs> and we've actually met Rommel in comics before. He's the Desert Fox. He's been in a couple of Sergeant Furies. Oh, they sure love to use that guy, don't they? Yeah. Um, you know what? Also, the plan to shoot Bucky and Cap in a missile to kill people was done in mm-hmm. Tales of Suspense. Yes, this is actually part of the thing that we've seen. That's pretty cool. Mm -hmm. And even if it hadn't been done in that story, it feels enough like them getting on the plane to go out, you know, whenever the bucky actually falls in the water. It feels a little bit like that. They were going to shoot them into London in that story too, huh? So it's both. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, I felt like getting gassed was straight out of a Golden Age Captain America story. And also Captain America's plan just didn't work out at all. That, that That was a pretty cool classic feel. I love how they're like, you can keep your shield. It's a stupid weapon anyway. It's like, yeah, because you've never watched footage of Captain America with his shield. Good job, general guy. Um, so not was not part of slaying in 1960, whatever, but it really feels like the German major pulls a not on Captain America. He says, so the brilliant Captain America uses the old fashioned shield. Much good it will do you. Nine. <laughs> Nine. So. He invented it. He oh, that, that, he started the trend. Mm-hmm. Those Germans—they're so industrious. So that anytime you guys use that out there, listeners, you're a Nazi. Just telling you. Oh, does that mean the '80s was full of <laughs> <laughs> Nazis left and right? Oh man! Wait, wait! Holy crap! That's where they get the name. They're Nazis. Not see. <laughs> <laughs> oh no. <laughs> Why does anybody listen to this show? I, I don't, don't know. know. I don't know. Um, anyways, the pyramids are in Egypt, which confused me because the story was talking about Captain America heading west. Mm. And Egypt is in the northeastern part of Africa. But then the whole North African campaign actually involves the lands in western Egypt and to the west from there. So he could have been... If he's all the way over in the right-hand corner of, of Africa, he could have been heading west still. Um, but I might just be mixed up on my my geography there. Or you're trying um, way harder than they were. 
probably trying harder than they were. The last thing I was going to say is that um, the last two things, Bucky carries a gun. Yes. In this story. Yeah. Which is very common to see now in World War II depictions of Bucky, but not common at this time. Right. And Captain America got to do some complex math in order to redirect the missiles, which he's supposed to be super smart. So he should be able to do And I like seeing that when it happens. Yeah, that was pretty cool. He's like an expert on ballistics and stuff, he said. Or he didn't right. say that because that'd be arrogant, but it was implied. Uh, we get a cool two-page little th- uh, th- description of various kinds of ants. We get uh, code puzzles. I-, I have a note on the It's a Small World Ants thing. Yeah? I wrote, kill me. I don't know what that means exactly. but Oh, are you getting <laughs> bored? <laughs> that was really boring. <laughs> Although I do think it's interesting that like – they're all pointing out how their flying ants are like a rare thing that only happened every once in a while. But meanwhile, he's got flying ants whenever he wants one. Yeah. I mean, you see them not all the time, but mm-hmm. I, I certainly feel like I see them a lot. Yeah. Um, the ghost of Ned Kelly, another mm. Iron Man story. Mm-hmm. Tony Stark has gone with his girlfriend, Dusty Glenn, the new Australian ladies tennis champion, to her hometown of Wangaratta. As they drive to their hotel, she tells him how this area used to be terrorized by a bush ranger named Ned Kelly. That evening at the hotel, Tony's a little bit worried about his health because the long drive, and he plans to go out tonight with Dusty, um, and this has left him no chance to recharge his chest plate. But hey, I can always recharge it later. While meeting with Dusty's friends, talk springs up about the bank robberies of the last three months being led by a man called Blackjack. That night... Tony falls into bed without charging his chest plate because, hey, I could always charge it in the morning. Except in the morning, you yeah. Tony is awakened by the sound of gunplay outside. And he can't charge his plate because the power's been cut. There's no electricity. So he runs into Dusty and they learn that Blackjack, is hang- his gang, has cut the power in the whole area as part of a robbery plan. The gang surrounds the hotel because evidently there are a lot of gold panners staying here and blackjack wants all of their gold tony puts on his red and gold armor but finds that he uh every move that he makes is super hard because he's almost out of power so he just walks slowly but directly toward blackjack everyone is firing at him but of course his armor deflects all the shots and they think he's the ghost of ned kelly the Mm -hmm. old bush ranger gangster I don't know. Mm, mm-hmm. So they run away. Iron Man passes out. He wakes up at a hospital. He plugs in, charges for a while, then flies back to the hotel, sneaks into his room, changes back to Tony, and reunites with Dusty. Yeah, apparently, wherever they are, Iron Man is not popular. I guess. No one knows who he is because they see him, and they don't say, oh, it's Iron Man. They say, could this red and gold armored thing be a ghost of an old guy from centuries, uh, decades ago? <laughs> that was a pretty weird one. Yeah. I also thought it was kind of funny that, like, none of the previous stories that probably took place in England made any effort to explain why they're in England. But if we're anywhere that's not England, they explain it. Like, we're in Australia because. Right. Well, that that kind of, I don't know. I always think about that when I'm watching Doctor Who. Like, how come no one notices that they're in England all the time? But then I think, you know, in America, I never think about that. Right. We're always in America. We're always in America. But that's just, you know. That's I was also from. wondering, does Tony have like an outlet adapter? You know, when you go to another country and they have different he is, outlets? He, oh, good point. You know what else is like, he is just the uh, worst about charging. 
wouldn't that be something you don't procrastinate on? You can die if I, you don't charge. I care more about charging my iPhone than he cares about charging his heart. <laughs> this is true. As I'm saying this, my iPad with all the comics on it is actually at 7%, so I should be plugged in right now. Not. <laughs> oh, you're Tony Stark in it. I am. I'm Tony Stark, and see how long I can make this podcast. Speaking of making the podcast, Guardians of the Tomb, Doctor Strange is having breakfast in his hotel when two young men knock. Jeff has seen a walled city while out flying over the Pennine Hills, and it shouldn't be there. But his friend Bill thinks he was just seeing things. Strange agrees, and he dismisses the two young men so he can get ready for his lecture he's giving that day. But later, after the lecture, he remembers the story, and at his hotel, he goes astral and decides to float out to the Pennines. The boys are there, out walking around. He listens to them chatter as rain breaks out, and they seek shelter with some sheep under a slab of rock. But under the slab of rock, they find a cave entrance, and they decide to explore and they find Roman sculpture and armor and weapons. And then, of course, there's a cave-in that seals the entrance. So they go deeper to hopefully find some other way out of the world. Um, that They quickly realize they are stuck. So Doctor Strange, Astral, flies back to his body, gets back in his body, calls the police for help. The police arrive. Doctor Strange helps them search. They find no one inside the cave. But then Strange finds the boys outside a little ways off. They had dove into an underground water, like an underground river or lake or something, and they swam through it and found a tunnel to the outside and came up in a river outside, and all's well that ends well. So he didn't even need to be in the story, basically. He did nothing but call the police. <laughs> and that didn't even do anything. Right. Uh, but one really cool note. Mm-hmm. He's Asian again. This is Steve Ditko art inspired. So yes, he does have his, um, Tom Brevoort explained it in a blog, described it in a blog post as, I think he said formative appearance. Mm, formative. That's a it's, nice way of saying not super racy. Yeah. Is formative or undeveloped or some idea that conveys this is early before it changed. Mm -hmm. Yep. He is Asian again, helping out with these British people the boys who are being young and foolish. Um, it was interesting description of his going to his astral form. Like it's a subconscious choice, but mm. he doesn't fight it when he realizes it's happening. I see. Yeah. Yeah. Also, cool. it says in the beginning, he was there for a lecture and I'm wondering what he lectures. Right. Cause he's not exactly a foremost mind known to the world on he's super secret. So like, is he going to go talk about magical stuff? Sometimes he's super secret. Other times it seems like someone just comes up and goes, hey, you're that Doctor Strange guy. So mm. I can't really tell with him. That's true. Um, we get a Fantastic Four origin. Uh, actually, it's called People into Superheroes. We get lots of origin recaps. Fantastic Four, Thor, the Hulk. And then we get the Bull of Minos. The Fantastic Four at the Circus. No, actually, the Fantastic Four are in the circus, performing for charity in the city of Knossos on the island of Crete. Torch flies around, Reed is a bouncy ball, Sue does a high-wire act and gradually turns invisible by parts until her uh -huh. feet are walking along. I think that would be entertaining to watch. The Thing smashes stuff, and next morning after the performance, the Thing is depressed about being a horribly mutilated representation of humanity, so the rest of the team decide to keep on having their vacation and go sightseeing without him. 
but yeah. he trails along behind being all grumpy. They go exploring the 4,000-year-old ruins of the Palace of King Minos. Uh, ben smashes a pillar, which exposes an opening to an underground chamber. Luxuriously furnished, with a table full of food, and a throne where the Minotaur sits, evidently just vibing for the last four millennia. He tells them very kindly, there's no way out of here. They're at the center of a maze. Now, they can fight the bull, the unbeatable bull if they want, and then, you know, find a way to return to their own world. So the thing decides to fight the bull, and he wins, which cheers him up, makes him feel good about life again. And the Minotaur mm-hmm. lets them go through the maze. Sue uses her female superpowered intuition to turn right at every fork until they find the entrance. And that's how they get out of the mythical level maze that was supposed to stump Theseus. <laughs> what a bonkers story. Yep. I think both Fantastic Four stories didn't feel very on point for a Fantastic Four story. A little bit weird. I thought they were, this one felt kind of Fantastic Four-y, just not a very well-constructed story. Uh, yeah. I didn't like that the thing uh, killed the bull either, but I guess it was maybe a magic bull or something. I don't know. Yeah, he didn't have to kill the bull. Also, King Minos told Theseus to fight a bull monster. And now the bull monster is telling the Fantastic Four to fight a different bull monster. So he's called a Minotaur because tar is, you know, from the word for bull. And it's King Minos's island kingdom. So that's where the word comes from. But anyways. Silly. It is silly. Um, Also, in the story, the Minotaur actually had a name, Asterion. So in the story, when they say, who are you? You'd think you just say his name, but he doesn't. You think. I am am the Minotaur. North Sea Wolf. The paddle steamer, Glen Lowry, is accosted by pirates in the northern waters of Scotland. The skipper tries to stand up to Blackbeard, who is, of course, the leader of the pirates, and he gets a shotgun butt to his head for his trouble. Dr. Don Blake is aboard and sees to the captain's injury. The doctor, the skipper, and the rest of the crew and passengers are put off into a lifeboat. The uh, pirates steal their ship. While they're drifting, Blake taps his cane to the boat and changes to Thor. And everyone's like, where did Thor come from? (laughs) He flies and pulls the boat to shore and then leaves everybody there and sets out down the road to catch up to the pirates. He wrecks their truck, brings the pirates and their stolen computer back to the crew. All the boat's people get back to their boat, and the pirates end up in the rope locker. This was a weird story. It was very weird. My only real note on that is it seemed like it was a continuation from the very first story. Like, he's still on that Norway vacation, they seem to (laughs) insinuate. Or he went back. One of the two. Right. He is in the waters north of Scotland, so he could be going down. I don't know. Where is... I thought it started with him in Norway, or was he just referencing Norway? I can't remember. Oh, uh, maybe. Maybe. I, my, my, my geography is messed up. Anyways, um, yeah. I wasn't sure how he was pulling the boat, if he was, like, using his hammer to fly through the air and pull the boat after right. him. But it never says that he's flying or that he's holding onto the hammer or any of the usual stuff they say for that. Uh-huh. Um, they also call Thor a Viking multiple times, which I don't think is accurate. Right. Because he's not a Viking. He was worshipped by Vikings. He says he'll travel slowly because the captain is dying and because women's. But that makes me wonder, can Thor actually change his flying speed? Because he always just throws the hammer and grabs on, right? That's pretty much all you would think. 
it ends very quickly and the the connective pieces of the plot barely hold together. I wasn't entirely sure all the time how it was going from one thing to the next, but Right. Um, we have a list of riddles. What has four legs and doesn't walk? A chair. <laughs> How do you spell hungry horse? M T G G M. Wait. I don't yeah. even know what that means. Is G G a horse word? Uh, Anyways, um, we don't need to read any more of the riddles. Flight into danger. Doctor Strange is in India and it is hot. So he's doing yoga in his hotel room when an Englishman comes to see him. His two sons are missing. He suspects foul play. So Strange takes some of the boys' personal belongings and tells the father, goodbye, I'll use these belongings to find your boys. If I can, no promises. Lighting his incense burner, he allows his astral form to drift not only through space, but also time. Mm. He goes to the city of Calcutta two weeks ago and sees the Englishman, a confident pilot ready to fly off, but he's low on fuel. He takes the fuel from his son's spare cans and leaves them a note. And then later that same morning, Strange watches as the two sons come out and get in their plane. They don't see the note and they know they just refilled those spare cans last night. So they take off without any cares. And you can see where this is going out Mm -hmm. over the jungle and they're low in the tank. They find their cans empty, and they make a forced landing near the white buildings of a temple. The worshippers at the temple are appalled to find outsiders desecrating their holy place, so the two men are immediately sentenced for execution. However, Doctor Strange slips into the body of the yogi in charge, a la Dead Man over at DC, declares that the god Vishnu has not been wronged by these men's presence, and he sets them free. Once they depart in their plane, Doctor Strange returns to his body in the present time. The belongings of the boys are no longer in his incense burner, and so Strange is content knowing the boys had indeed been beheaded in that other timeline, but not anymore. He just changed history. Wow. First of all, very dark. Mm-hmm. And second of all, like, God, that's so, like, this, all these, all this art is very cartoony and like, hey, kids, happy Christmas. And like, hey, kids, we're going to behead this guy. <laughs> I don't right. know. <laughs> they even show a picture of him about to be beheaded. And they make a big deal about the, the stuff that they, the dad gave Doctor Strange. One of them was like a, a, a neck chain that the boy always wore because um, you couldn't take it off uh-huh. without breaking it. And he had grown too big to take it off before realizing. So he just like 100% always has this thing on his neck. Right. But now the dad has it, which means the kid had been beheaded. Yes. But now he changed history. So he wasn't beheaded. Also, Doctor Strange can time travel. Uh, I was just going to say, and he can change history. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Why do we even, why do we even need all these freaking uh, time stones and stuff? Just go change history. Just, just, just get into your astral form and go back. Mm-hmm. I did like he was a mystic doing yoga. Yeah. I feel like I want to see him being a mystic in the comics more like at the start of a story, casually mystic, not like magical person. And in this case, he wasn't doing a lecture. He was gathering wisdom from gurus and yogis. So I kind of like that idea too. Like he goes around mm-hmm. talking to to people to learn more things. There was definitely a trope in the mid, in the second half of the 20th century of like, People starting cults in the Near East, uh, in the, like the Indian subcontinent. I'm not sure how widespread it was versus how much I was just told a lot about it as a kid. Mm. Um, but it was a thing that happened. So he may be playing into that. Um, 
And representing other cultures in stories is weird. Because, like, he goes to this temple and they're like, we must kill you for going, for arriving. Um, which is very tropey and stereotypy. But also, England was this giant empire. So uh-huh. their children's literature is full of tropey, stereotypy stuff of other cultures that they've, you know. Exactly. Conquered. Yeah, right. So, anyways, Doctor Strange, Keeper of the Time Stone, just changed history. Mm-hmm. That's right, my takeaway. La- last story. The end of the Hulk. Uh-huh. Bruce Banner and Rick Jones are taking a nice, relaxing trip to Lake Yerdai, somewhere in Canada. I can't tell you where, because I looked up Lake Yerdai, and I couldn't find any information. So it's probably not even a real place. Rick probably. wants to relax. Bruce is feeling too morose to relax. He cannot go fishing. He is too sad. Bruce makes Rick promise to call the authorities if he changes to the Hulk again to stop him before he hurts anyone. And Rick agrees, if Bruce can just relax and go fishing. Then the train stops, because they haven't actually gotten there yet. Before long, Bruce changes to the Hulk for no apparent reason, and Rick pulls the emergency cord on the train. He runs to a phone to call the Canadian Mounties as Hulk breaks out of the train. Rick follows the Hulk into the woods. The Hulk runs into some lumberjacks, and they fight. And then the Hulk is faced with the Canadian Mounties and the army. And the rest of the story is basically just them launching stuff at him. <laughs> and they think that they kill him. But Rick later finds Bruce wandering. So I guess he survived. Yeah. And they go fishing because Bruce is randomly in a better mood now. Mm-hmm. The only takeaway on this is that they talk about how his gamma research has helped people with certain lung diseases and heart diseases. Mm. Yes. And I don't believe they've talked about that in the comics at all. Like. Outside of him building a bomb, I'm not sure what Gamma stuff he's done um, to help mankind, I mean. Right. I mean, he's a scientist. You'd think he's doing stuff, but he's also unemployed. Well, at this point, he's not. Because not that continuity is really important to any of these, but this story could only really take place attached to the original Hulk series. Mm-hmm. So, like, sometime before Avengers number one. Which was basically um, just him left and right creating military weapons for the military. Mm-hmm. The description of his change has Bruce's bone structure doubling in size. I just kind of liked that description. Mm-hmm. I think now and it quadruples in size. Probably. Probably. And this is the first time Hulk goes to Canada. Yeah. Eh? Which happens a bit. Overall thoughts on the annual? Uh, Yeah, it was fine. <laughs> I don't know. It didn't really <laughs> blow me away. It was an interesting little piece of history, I guess. Yes. Um. Not sure if we're going to do this at the next time. Mike and I will decide that off air and you'll forget completely by the time we get around to the end of the next year. So um, we shall move on now to proper comics. Oh, no. I have to do Sergeant Fury. You have to do Sergeant Fury. I mean, I get to do Sergeant Fury. And it's right? how many commandos. Number 52, Triumph at Treblinka. And while you do that, I'm going to go grab my charger. <laughs> okay. The Howlers, Prisoners of War. And guess who's with them? Happy Sam Sawyer. So that's the cover. The inside is the same title, and the caption reads, It is high noon over Nazi-occupied Poland as a lone American B-17 wings its way towards England on the last leg of a long trip from the mid-eastern city of Tehran. Tehran? Its passengers, none other than Sergeant Fury and Italian commandos, are eagerly looking forward to a well-deserved pass when suddenly the most dreaded cry known to flying soldiers ring out. And the cry is, bandits at 12 o'clock. And now, before we get to our cavorting credits, let's hear it for our lovable letter, Artie Sebeck. There, we put your name first, Artie. Now, while you forget about the Rays, never before has such a 
cataphonic classic of combative, combative creative creativity poured from the pens of Stanley editor, Dick Ayers Petzler, Gary Friedrich writer, and John Severin inker. So yeah, they're flying home and they're attacked by bandits um, and they get shot down and Happy Sam Sawyer is with them. I guess he was with them last issue, so that makes sense. Anyway, they do manage to take the plane's bandits down with them, but they do end up crashing. And they're like, well, what do we do? And Sam's like, well, while we're here, oh, actually one of the guys, uh, the one of the pilot, I guess, dies. So they take time to bury him. And then they have a little fight over whether they should mourn more or not. And Nick's like, dude, we got to keep fighting. Um, anyway, Sam's like, well, since we're here, there's a guy. I forget who the guy is. It doesn't matter. Um, some scientist guy is in prison and the prison's right over there. So let's go get him. So, meanwhile, we cut to Izzy. Remember Izzy? He's still in um, a concentration camp, and he's still not talking. So they put him in the box, and it really sucks. And then they let him out of the box, and they kick him back into the prison, and he really, really wishes the Howlers would rescue him, but he's not sure if they will. Back to the Howlers not rescuing him. They find some laundry, prisoner garb laundry, hanging on a line. So they take it, they dress up. They find a couple soldiers and a bunch of prisoners off away from the overall prison, like doing manual labor. So one by one, the howlers like replace the prisoners and tell them to run away while the guards aren't looking. And the guards apparently think all white people look the same, even though they're also white. So I don't really know. But uh, they don't seem to notice that it's now howlers instead of who they had before. And so they just bring them back to the prison. Um, And then let's see. Nick gets beat up at some point because he can't help being Nick. Uh, they find out that that uh, they've been that the prisoners who are already have been here are digging a hole to escape. And Sam's like, "Let's change that plan a little bit. Instead of escaping in the middle of the woods where you have nowhere to go and nothing to do, and they'll eventually catch you and bring you back, let's escape to the main office." And so they do that, and they beat up the guys in the main office, and they take their clothes and they dress up as Nazis, and then. Um, uh, Dino gets on the phone in German and has them bring a truck and they all get in the truck and I can't remember. Oh, they almost, they kind of get away, I think. And they're also arranging for a pickup and there's a lot of explosions. Oh, they like set a boat on fire and then they, I think Sam, like, I don't know what it is. It's like a floaty thing that somehow is, has a radio transmitter and it, he calls people to come get them and they're, they're gotten next issue into Germany. Yeah, those buoy things in the water, I guess they're more than just like, don't pass this. Maybe they have like some sort of purpose. Doesn't seem like it's programmable, but I don't know. Whatever. I wasn't there. So we have said how we're in this season where like every month Marvel is doing something new. Mm-hmm. And January 1968, Marvel uh, launches Captain America and the Incredible Hulk, which we're going to talk about next episode. And there's also an Iron Man and Submariner one shot, which we're going to talk about this episode. Mm-hmm. Um. So, yeah. What'd you think of this one? It was cool. I mean, the last few we had were were pretty powerful. So this one just seemed like kind of a more straight up story. Yeah, it wasn't strictly formula, but it was a lot closer to no. it than we have been. No. The best part was Izzy, and I still wonder. Like, I can't believe it's taken us this long to uh, rescue him. And I kind of yeah. thought it was going to happen this issue. Like, it was going to be, um, uh, uh just. Luck of the draw that somehow they crashed near where he was being imprisoned. Mm-hmm. But it turned out, no, it's a different prison. So that didn't happen. So he's still in prison. He's also very helpful in telling us where he's been. 
um, because we knew he was being taken to Tokyo, Mm -hmm. but now he's working on the Burma road. So he's somewhere between Southwest China and Burma, which if you look on a map, Burma is now known as Myanmar. Um, (laughs) Mm -hmm. So he's, he's, you know, he's done some traveling. Um, Treblinka is of course a real place in Poland. And although it's not one I have heard a lot about, it did operate an extermination camp for well over a year during the deadliest phase of Hitler's whole final solution thing. Okay. Um, close to close to a million Jewish and Romani people lost their lives there, which puts it only behind Auschwitz for just sheer numbers. Oh, wow. Of, yeah. Um, so, yeah. The, um, the exchange on page five I really liked because um, Eric does have a point. But Nick has a bigger point, and Eric acknowledges that. Mm-hmm. Um, he says, uh, we are, Sergeant, you can you not at least show some bit of respect for the dead? And right. Like, yeah, but this is war. We've got to, the Nazis are going to come by. we got to keep going. I'm kind of amazed they stopped to bury him. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that was common practice or not, but it seemed like risky. Yeah. Yeah. After Nick Fury says, we got to get out of here, they still stop to bury him anyway. So that, that is weird. Um. I totally believe that Izzy would be able to resist giving up information. Mm-hmm. But on page eight, he has a lot of energy coming out of that um, <sighs> oven. Yeah. The Howlers are a bit like superheroes, aren't they? Yeah. I don't think he would be so, no. you know, gung-ho after being roasted. That usually pretty much depletes a person to near death if they even survive it. When I saw them dressing up as prisoners, I was like, oh, okay, they can infiltrate the camp and they'll have their guns secretly stowed in their mm, – nope, yeah, they, they left their guns, guns behind. Yeah. Sawyer was kind of useless on this mission. Sawyer? Happy Sam Sawyer? Oh, yeah. Well, he did come up with the idea to infiltrate the uh, – or to escape to the main room instead of to the woods. But otherwise, yeah, I guess. Um, but, how come – where's Eric – because Dino is now doing the German talking again. And it's like, you have a German on your team. He was there. He's on the mission. I know. It's like, Eric, they keep just kind of, now he's he's getting the car, I guess, somehow. He keeps like just, he's very Rick Jones in this. Like, he just shows up here and there and everywhere. Mm-hmm. And there's no real linear motion with him for some reason. He's driving their truck and he's like, things are going smoothly. We're hitting a checkpoint. It'll be the gravest crisis. I must be ready for it. Um, but whenever they get there, he doesn't get a chance to like be German and help them disguise. They're like, mm-hmm. we, we suspect you give us a random answer to a random question and it's a trick question and they answer it wrong. Right. Anyways, it's all right. Not a bad right. story, but not, not as, bad. yeah. After last month won the, uh, I know. won the ranking for me. I don't think this one's mm-hmm. going to, uh, Blitzkrieg and Bavaria. We'll have to see. All right. My turn, right? Your turn. Strange Tales 167. Um, this is a classic Nick Fury cover with him and the various shielders running with the US flag in the background. Um, okay. I just, I might change my end zinger because I learned something this week about continuity that blew my mind. So I think I might change my ending zinger. Anyways, okay. um, all right. Opening up the comic. Nick Fury, Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D., Stanley Editor, Jim Steranko, Writer-Illustrator, Joe Sennett Inker, Sam Rosenletterer, merely one of the greatest teams Marvel has ever assembled. The Yellow Claw's plan to silence Jimmy Woo forever has gone wild. 
Instead, the FBI agent clutches the lifeless form of the girl he loves as a flood of black torment tears at his soul. Though both could have prevented the death of Suwan, Nick Fury and the insidious Master of Evil were locked in mortal combat, each willing unwilling to surrender his position of attack. The ultimate climax of hate now begins, with but seconds remaining until the final Armageddon. Okay, simple stuff. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah. Ready? Mm-hmm. Shield fights the Claw's goons for a four-page spread. Wu cries about Swan being dead. Fury goes after the Yellow Claw. They face off with this, like, psychic battle where the claws being all warbly and stuff. And it's cool art, but also kind of weird. Um, Fury ends by pulling out his Satan Claw. And guess what? He wins. The Yellow Claw goes down and he's a robot. Not just any robot, y'all. The Yellow Claw has been secretly a Doombot this whole time what we end with dr doom playing chess with this advanced robot that i looked up and it's called the prime mover Mm. um and the pieces on the chessboard are all the players from the last eight issues of drama and the story is just over that's it don't miss next ish in the wake of a stranger yeah, Dr. Doom's just kind of like, well, that was a fun little jaunt for my intelligence. Now back to my real work. The entire story for yeah. eight months is yeah. nothing. Yeah. Well, a part of me is impressed that Dr. Doom did all this and, and didn't really seem to matter to him. <laughs> like, that's how destructive he was. This is the most successfully destructive he's ever been, in a way. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, it just seemed like kind of a really weak write-off, I guess. So the Yellow Claw hasn't been menacing New York. They called Jimmy Woo in because Jimmy Woo suspected the Yellow Claw but was wrong. Mm. Sawan is really Sawan or is also a Doombot? I don't know. Probably also a Doombot. Is everybody a Doombot? Good question. Wow, that really is unanswered, isn't it? Are Did all, all those of, all those people working for Yellowclaw think it was Yellowclaw, or are they bots, or is it Doctor Doom? I don't know. Is it all Doom? I don't. I think everyone everywhere is secretly a Doom bot. Yeah, including Nick Fury. Mm-hmm. Um, also, maybe I just haven't been paying attention because this plot has been going on a long time. But was this the first we've heard of like a nuclear something or other that was going to blow up New York, or was that always the reason? I thought it was a big giant alien ship last issue or something. I think two issues ago, there was the big, like, claw-shaped thing in the sky, and the mm-hmm. next issue became something else. Okay. They keep changing the threat, is the problem. Yes. Because yes. Yellow Claw, like most Doombots, can't seem to focus on one goal. Right. I don't... Boy, that's annoying. They're all Doombots, mate. They're all, um, 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 yeah, that's just... Are you a Doombot? You would tell it, me if you were a Doombot, right? Of course I wouldn't. It's a great double-page splash <laughs> in the end, though. Yeah, it's a great double-page splash at the end. And the four pages. Okay, so this has never been done before. And no. J- and, and Jim Stranko's like, okay, I want to tell four pages of story. So we're going to spread it over two double-page spreads. And whenever this story gets reprinted, they knit them together and they do a, a gatefold. 
Mm. So you have two double width pages knit in the middle by the spine. Right. It's pretty great. It's pretty. Uh, it is pretty great. Um, ambitious. Yes. Clay Quartermain. Uh, I really want more of him. I love him on the cover. Mm-hmm. And he's like, you could see him visually. He's the second page. Like, he's always smiling and he's orange and he looks cool. And I want him to talk it, more, but nothing. We, we haven't seen him since he first showed up and he was cool and then he was gone. Mm-hmm. The Contessa, who has a definite sexy new look and has not shown this before, but she hardly gets to, you know, be a thing in this. Mm-hmm. Although, as this episode comes out, our discussion episode has probably already come out. She recently made her MCU debut. Oh, yes, she did. So that was interesting. Now, that was, I, ha- I was going to say it's kind of a different character, but since we don't really know what her character is in this, how do I know that? But it right. seemed like a different character. It seemed like a different character, and we probably will. T- we will have probably talked about that. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but yeah, I liked how Yellow Claw was about to whip out the next chapter of the movie serial, but Nick Fury has had enough and just takes him down. But then I found the ending of this story to be distinctly upsetting. I don't know if Storinko just didn't know what to do, right? Or if he knew the change in the series was coming up, and so he decided to scrap his plot and start a new one. Or what? Yeah, I don't get it either. Also, last issue talked about this being the finale, but there is one more chapter coming. So I don't know if it's like an epilogue or what, but there's one more half issue S.H.I.E.L.D. story before S.H.I.E.L.D. gets a full length series. Okay. But anyways, I don't have anything else on that one unless you do. Boo. And this is supposed to be like the classic. Because this cover is very classic. This cover Mm -hmm. is every trade paperback of Nick Fury ever in the history of ever. And I don't like to poop on people's parades, but every time I see somebody online be like, Jim Steranko, I'm like, don't write anything. Don't write anything because <laughs> right. people like things. That's good. They should like things. But they should I'm just like, like things. Yeah. Other than being visually interesting, a lot of the time, the story is so, oh. Mm. Um, so the Ancient One is alive. Mm-hmm. This dream, this doom, Doctor Strange, master of the mystic arts, one moment ago, the shimmering, shadowy face of the venerated ancient one materialized before the startled eyes of Doctor Strange, and now the mystic master stands transfixed as the body of his mentor melts into mortal flesh. What? Dare I believe what my senses tell me? Does the Ancient One truly live? Or is it some vengeful wraith sent to mock me, to prey upon my grief? Now I feel his great wisdom, his limitless goodness, reaching into my very soul. At last, my teacher has returned to Earth. Be at peace, faithful disciple. Because, you know, he's ancient. I'm sure his voice sounds like crap. Stanley supervised the stunning spectacle of startling sorcerific splendor. From the pens of demoniac Denny O'Neill scripter and druidic Dan Adkins artist, adroitly assisted by Sam Rosen Letterer. In truth, we are witnessing a touching moment. But let us not linger here, for rare wonderment awaits us in the pages which follow. Mm. So, yes, Doctor Strange is very excited that his master is alive, but we don't know where Yandroth and Victoria Bentley are. They transported last issue. We don't know where they went. So... The two sorcerers go flying together to the Ancient Ones, Sanctum Sanctorum in the Himalayas. 
Uh, the agent was exhausted. He's stumbling over his words, but he and Doctor Strange both managed to work their magic over a smoking brazier until they can see Victoria Bentley in the smoke. But their spells aren't strong enough. Point harder. Point harder. I'm pointing as hard as I can. Um, and Victoria recedes screaming into, um, I think this was the dimension of dreams. Mm. So the Ancient One sends Doctor Strange to the dream realm after her. And uh, since he is Strange's only tether to reality, um, I guess as long as he stays awake. You know how old people are about staying awake, though, right? I'm 41. I already have trouble staying awake sometimes. No kidding. Strange finds Iandroth and Victoria in the dream world, but he is attacked by several menacing dreams. A dinosaur, mm. some Viking warriors... Um, Strange is determined to keep these threats from Victoria, but Yandroth also raises a gun and takes aim at Strange in the last panel. The mind-wrenching climax of the dark duel between Doctor Strange and Yandroth, plus the most startling announcement in the annals of wizardry, it'll all be here next issue. And the hosts Ooh. of Hoggoth will never forgive you if you miss. I think the announcement is just Doctor Strange is getting his own magazine. I think you're right. Well, uh, this happened. Yeah. I mean, this makes sense to connect to what would happen before to what happens next, I guess. Mm-hmm. I don't feel like we're wasting time here, but we also didn't really move the story forward except to put Doctor Strange back into conflict with the bad guys again. Well, this doesn't... Uh, uh, none of this atmosphere or anything really feels like uh, the master of science anymore either, or whatever he was. No, now that we're in the dream dimension, no, this is not. No. He's supposed to have a teleporter, and Doctor Strange tuned it to Earth. Did he tune it to Dream Earth? I thought he just tuned it to regular Earth. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, <laughs> um, I know, we get another, mm -hmm. We get another uh, spread across pages. So this is like the third spread that this book has. So lots of big art tonight. Yeah. The art's great. The art's been really good lately, actually, for Doctor Strange. I think I think I would like this more as a random chapter than as a continued story because this issue has cool art and cool action, mm. but uh -huh. there's no like there's no drama underlying what's happening here as a continued story with no break, just an unrelenting series of events. This is just wearying, and the story does get tired after a while. And I feel like all these anthology stories suffer this so here's hoping now that they're all expanding into their own mm -hmm. titles that we're going to put more effort into building lives instead of just drama after drama after drama we'll see um the next issue box at the end of this book is where it sounds like Starenko thought he was going full length next chapter mm -hmm. um but yeah that doesn't happen okay uh -oh. anything else Doctor Strange no never not usually right. someday maybe Thor Oh no, I have to do Thor. Okay, Thor. You get even to do Thor. I get to do Thor. Why do I keep saying even that? Even in wrong? death, you get to do Thor. Even in death, you still look sad. Have you ever heard that? That's a good good album. Good album, everybody. Operation Mindcrime. Okay, Thor number 150. Um, even in death, it's called. Stripped of his godly power by the vengeful Odin, the mighty thunder god battles valiantly, although hopelessly, against the evil wrecker until at last Thor falls toppled by the merciless foe who has accidentally gained the enchanted power intended for Loki himself. Then, slowly, gleefully, 
The triumphant wrecker removes the rubble which covers the fallen Asgardian, presenting a pictorial monument to the towering talents of Stan the Man Lee and Jack King Kirby, creators of wonderment beyond mortal measure. Dazzling delineated, dazzlingly delineated by Vincent Coletta, lovingly lettered by Sam Rosen, a living tribute to Marveldom assembled. That's a new one. Um, yeah, Thor's dead. And Wrecker like picks him up and goes, wow, he's dead. I totally killed Thor. I could kill anybody. This is awesome. I'm going to go do that. And he leaves. And Hela does show up. And she's like, ah, an Asgardian who's dead. I'm here to take him. But wait, there's still a sparkle. He's got a sparkle. That means he's not dead dead. He's mostly dead. And Um, mostly dead means partly alive. Partly alive. And sure enough, like this ghost spirit astral projection version of Thor comes out and he's like, you cannot take me as long as I'm like this. Neener, neener. And she's like, dang it. You're right. Meanwhile, we cut to Loki who goes to visit the Norn queen um, and talks about how like, dude, you gave the wrong guy my power, but that's cool. I'm not mad. Hey, look on your crystal ball, Balder and Sif are coming. And she's like, they can't get through my forest of awesome. And she's right. Because when they try and get through there, like these big giant, Gnome, I can't forget what they call them, like goblins, barbaric uh, something or others, goblins or something, attack them. Um, and while Baldur's busy trying to kill one, he actually does beat one, but then he looks up and Sif is gone. So they kidnapped her while he was busy because she's a woman. Um, so Thor, in his ghostly form, follows Wrecker around with the idea of he's going to have to try and figure out how to do something. The Wrecker continues his onslaught now more than ever because he's stoked that he killed the Thunder God. He knocks down buildings. He beats up cops. Um, the Nor- Oh, yeah. Meanwhile, the Norn Queen and Sif have a conversation, which is kind of interesting. She's like, Norn Queen is showing Sif that Thor is dead. And Sif's like, I bet he's only mostly dead because if he was dead, dead, I would know it. And she's like, well, there's only one way for you to save him. I can't take you to Earth, but I can put your soul into the Destroyer. And she's like, okay, I'll do that. And she does that. And then she te- then she can teleport the Destroyer to Earth, I guess. And after all that happens, Loki and the Norn Queen laugh because it turned out it was a big scam. And that's what they wanted to happen. Um, Thor is useless. He keeps trying to, like hit the wrecker as a ghost and it doesn't work. So then he goes back to his body. He's like, let's see if I'm, I'm recovered at all. And he jumps in it and he's alive. But while he's figuring that out, the destroyer suddenly shows up and beats the wrecker. This is a wrecker that has like been beating on Thor for three comics. Now he beats, he, she beats the wrecker in three panels. Um, and Thor wobbles over and goes, Oh God, the destroyer, not the destroyer. What from bad to worse, first the wrecker, now the destroyer, and the destroyer can't talk, but it like waves, it makes like a heart sign and does mm-hmm. kissy faces. And Thor's like, You're trying to trick me. I'm gonna kill you. And he attacks Sif. Continued next issue. So yeah, Thor is attacking Sif. That's the whole Carnilla Loki plan. That's pretty cool. Mm-hmm. It is pretty cool. I guess the Norn Queen is evil. I wasn't sure if she was more like a neutral character, but not on this issue. Yeah. Um, she has played mostly middle of the road, but we've been told that she's evil, but she hasn't actually done a lot of evil. This is definitely evil. Mm-hmm. I wonder. Oh, I guess the plan is for the destroyer slash Sif to just kill Thor and then Loki will be happy. Either the destroyer slash Sif will kill Thor or Thor will kill his only love and the destroyer. Either way, Loki's Bang. Gonna be happy. Loki has it down on this one. Yeah. 
Um, we have Hella uh-huh. in full effect in this, which is really great. We've only seen her very sparingly, so this mm-hmm. was a welcome surprise. I like this. Mm-hmm. And she's not really evil either, at least at this point. She's kind of just doing her job. Yeah, being the le- being the, like the head of the realm of the dead puts people in a bad light a lot of times, but she's just doing her job. Well, I think in the mythology she's just doing her job, but in the MCU is she ultimately evil? I can't remember. She She hasn't been so far that I can think of. Yeah, she's very sim- her background makes her sympathetic. I don't remember enough of the details of Thor Ragnarok to weigh in. But she was very wrong. If she's going overboard in her retribution, maybe. But she was definitely wronged and justified in being a- angry. Oh, Thor Ragnarok? Yeah. Uh, yeah, they didn't really develop her at all. But I meant in the comics. Like, is she... Oh, you said MCU. I thought you meant the TV. I'm sorry. Uh, movies. And uh, you. And I, I don't know about the comics. I have not read enough Hella. Okay. I feel like at some point she's evil. But maybe not. That'd be great if she wasn't. If she's just doing her job. I, I had the impression that she's just like always on the wrong side of whatever Thor is trying to do at the time. Mm-hmm. Cause Thor never wants to be dead. So, right. Carnilla gets a name. She has been the Norn queen every time we've seen her. And now she's finally. Oh, Carnilla. Okay. And they mention Balder in passing. Um, Loki has absolutely no, no, she has no affection for Balder yet. She's like, my forest barbaric will destroy them both before this day is over. Mm-hmm. So. Are they supposed to hook up? They they get a friendship. Oh, okay. Um, I was kind of bummed that it turned out her offer to Sif was a Loki idea and then they're cackling because there was that one panel where it's like, am I not a woman also? Let me be your friend. And it's like, that's very rare for two fictional women to like be friendly and help each other. Yeah. But then it turned I- out it was all a scam. So, oh, well. I like to think it was a joint scam. It wasn't just Loki's idea, but yeah, she is. It would be nice for you know women to actually the whole Bechtel test, right? Yeah, we're gonna have to have a conversation for one thing. Uh-huh. So I thought <laughs> that not- I thought this story was passing that a little bit, but then it turned out it was just one big lie. They tricked me. Does it feel weird that Thor has an astral form? This is the kind of thing like that happens where I'm always like, oh god, you better really explain how this works, and so we don't do this all the time because. How does this work that it just doesn't happen all the time? Well, also, he's already a god. He's already a supernatural being. So does he have an additional spiritual or soul existence apart from his body? That is interesting. I didn't even think of it that way. Yeah. But then also, like, if he can just do this and then wait five minutes and his godly form heals and then just jump back in. Mm -hmm. That's not cool. No, it's not. It's a dangerous precedent. Yes. That's like when he asked daddy for help. In those early issues, every five issues. I did go back and look because Balder's like, oh, where'd Sif go? I went back and looked. Sif and Balder are side by side. The barbaric attacks. And we never see Sif again in that scene. From the very first panel of the attack onward, she's gone. So, Which I did not love. Like, to me, Sif is really tough. Or, you know, when they introduced her, she was crazy tough. So if you're going to just kidnap a tough person, I want to see how you did it. Right. Because that seems difficult. You wouldn't just, uh, you wouldn't kidnap Thor off panel because we'd all go, how the heck did you do that? And she could have helped Balder for the first like half page and mm-hmm. then get a panel of something sneaky happening to her to take her unawares or something. Mm-hmm. And once uh, again, once again, he's being all Mr. Like protective too. She's like, I can help you. And he's like, no, 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 I got this. It's like, um, she could help you. She could probably was, beat you in a fight. She probably could because she is, I mean, she's Sif. Yeah. 
I was also just kind of confused on why Thor was even allowed to be doing this. Because Hela's like, you're dead, you're mine. Mm-hmm. So how is Thor thrust out of his body? How is he allowed back into his body? Did Hela just get bored so Thor didn't die? I don't know. Right. A spark of life does still exist is the only explanation. So it's like, I wish they would have done a little more on that. Mm-hmm. Um, page 15. Mm-hmm. Thor goes back into his body. Mm-hmm. Put a pin in this moment right here. Okay. Because next episode, Thor appears in another story that takes place while the Wrecker and Destroyer are fighting. Oh, okay. It has to take place then because really, there's not really any spot for it anywhere else. So the Wrecker Destroyer fight lasts a little bit longer than the four panels that we see. Okay. Um, but yeah, nice cliffhanger, big oops from Sif, and mm-hmm. I'm pretty excited about the next issue. Yeah, it's a good good setup for some drama. This storyline is really lasting a while. Yeah, but that's okay. But I'm digging it. Yeah, it's okay. lasting a while in all the good ways that the other stories are not way. lasting a while. Right, exactly. Um, okay, so we still have an Inhumans backup going on. The origin of the um, incomparable Inhumans, and this one's just called Triton. So it's probably about Triton. Please deliver all plaudits and accolades to Stanley and Jack Kirby for the exquisite epic. Inked by Joe Sinnott, lettered by Artie Simek, the strange saga of the first inhuman to leave Adelan, the great refuge, and walk where none but humans e'er have trod. So, yeah, he does that. He swims away. I guess no one has ever thought to do that before. And he goes past, you know, octopuses, squids maybe, whatever those are. And he finds ship-crashed boats. So he's like, wow, there's actually other civilization besides us. Um, and then he finds the creature from the Black Lagoon. He just walk, goes right past that. Oh, creature from the Black Lagoon. Black, why can't I say this? Black Lagoon is attacking a female. So he intervenes. But it turns out it was just a movie. But it was a movie that is for some reason surrounded by armed guards and scuba gear. Because when he beats up the actor, um, they all show up and start shooting at him. And he goes unconscious, and when he wakes up, he's in a really tight fish tank, and all these people are like, let's figure out what this guy is. And he thinks to himself, I'll pretend that I'm unconscious and weak because I want to learn more about them. Next, Inhuman at Large. It's weird that this is the very first time Inhumans have ever left the Great Refuge. I agree, because at this point, they've been around forever. Mm -hmm. And we saw them like, Maybe we didn't see them hanging out with cavemen, but we saw like cavemen hanging around them. Right. Well, whenever they departed from cavemen, mm-hmm. actually, actually, this is going to be retconned to be not true because remember how I mentioned a long time ago that Tuck the Cave Boy mm-hmm. is retconned to be an inhuman. Right. <laughs> so um, when he leaves and he encounters like the fish people, the the Black Lagoon monster, everything, at first I thought maybe this was like one of the other comic book races on earth earth kirby mm-hmm. but then no it's just a just a movie right and i guess medusa has not yet made her sojourn to the cave where the wizard's oh, gonna find her i sure hope that story happens i don't think it does well that's but, silly nonsense then. so we like never right. learn why medusa lived in a cave all those years i don't think so <laughs> gosh I dang think, it i think they just decide that didn't happen until later on somebody fills in a blank uh, well, at some point, she must flash back to her time on the Frightful Four. You would think so, right? You would think. The story was fine. I mean, it just nothing. I mean, they're really quick, I guess, because they're like three whole pages long. But 
yeah, this one was fine. It just doesn't really have anything that like merits comment for me, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so shall we go on to our weird book? <sighs> our really weird book. I always am baffled by the existence of this book. Why did they do it this way? What is, uh, what is the point? I don't understand. Yeah. So Iron Man and Submariner is a weird artifact because the last issue of suspense said next month, Cap gets his own mag. But what about Iron Man? Wait and see. Mm-hmm. And then in Astonish, it said Hulk in his own book and Namor is in suspense next month, which means I guess that like the decisions and how to split the books were kind of like, didn't they all didn't come at once. They, they, they had to figure this out as they went. That's all I can think of is like they were giving Cap his own book, but they hadn't figured out a full Iron Man story yet. And they were giving Hulk his own book, but they hadn't figured out a whole Submariner story yet. So it's like, well, let's just do this one issue where these carryovers can share an issue before we mm-hmm. give them their full stories. And, and it sta- go- staggering out the, the, the debut issues. Because you get two debut issues, yeah. two debut issues, and two debut issues. And like you said last time, like the fact that Gene Colan was brought in to do part one of this Submariner story, mm-hmm. and then part two in here, makes me think like scheduling got odd and they ex- they planned for this to be somewhere else or right i don't know something weird happened but this is such a bonkers thing to exist it is marvel's first one shot apparently yeah i guess so or at least the marvel universe's first one shot because mm-hmm. timely had red raven comics number one that did not have a number two well it's number two is human torch but that's yeah. another story yeah which okay. we won't cover we're not going to go back in time um, except in the Namor story, but that's, we'll talk about that in a minute. The torrent without the tumult within bad enough that Iron Man overtaxes his heart and transistors in battling the sinister whiplash and evidently forgets to charge when he goes to bed in hotels, but bad enough that while he's helpless and unconscious, the Magia leader, big M turns a laser beam on him, but just to really top things off, this is the moment the Magia's gambling ship is attacked by none other than AIM. And so we see Iron Man lying there with this, um, it looks like a severed wire. So like two live wire ends just like dangling wildly in the air above him. Uh-huh. The last blast to hit the ship sort circuited the laser, but it's also ripped a hole in the hull. The place will be flooded in no time. When Big M and his Magia hood sealed off the compartment and escaped, they left me held fast by this magnetized table. Breaking free of the magnetic grip on my armor would be rough at full strength, and my powers drained completely. Even minor exertion could bring on a fatal heart attack. But I must try lifting my right hand. I must, though I may perish in the attempt. With the editing of Stan Lee, with the inking of Johnny Craig, with the uh, lettering of Sam Rosen, is it any wonder that another Marvel milestone has been reached by the talented teaming of Archie Goodwin and Gene Colan? Okay, so like I said, it looks like there's a severed wire dancing around over Iron Man. The art's a little weird, so I can't tell if exactly that's what's going on. But with his last remaining ergs of power, Iron Man manages to move his right arm to take his own recharging wire, which, by the way, just has a naked wire tip, not an actual technical connection device, like, say, a power outlet. Anyway, takes his own recharging, uh, not outlet, but like Jack. He um, pulls it out of the casing and he touches it to the end of the live wire. This is, of course, perfectly safe to just randomly connect with raging electricity. 
and it recharges his armor very quickly. Up on the deck of the ship, um, there because this is a casino cruise that people are doing, so there are lots of normies uh, having their gambling fun, all disrupted by the ship tilting and rocking um, from the attack. Some aim agents in like an underwater version of their beekeeper outfits, they they swim to the side of the ship, they climb up to the deck, and guess who's up there, y'all? Guess who's up there? Jasper Sitwell. What? He's in the crowd. It's now being held by um, by aim at gunpoint. Jasper looks a lot like Jimmy Olsen, I was going to say. Um, <laughs> in the shadows, in the same area, but like in a different part, uh, Whiplash, Big M, and some other um, Maji dudes are hiding. Until Whiplash decides to start attacking everyone with his steel-fibered lash. So he's holding off aim. And then Big M, who's, by the way, their their face is still in shadow the whole time. We can't see who they are. Uh, Big M makes off with all the other henchmen to a secret door. And Whiplash follows them out, still whipping everybody as he goes. But you know what? AIM doesn't care. They're just here to loot the casino. They just they just want the money from the casino. Um, Sitwell, he starts sneaking his way below decks. Uh, I think he figures that Iron Man might be lying helpless somewhere. Because last time Sitwell saw Iron Man, he was unconscious. So he thinks maybe Iron Man's still like, you know, almost dead. But Iron Man is not almost dead, nor unconscious. He is just slowly, you know, getting more underwater because he's lower in the ship and the water's coming in. You've seen Titanic. You know how this works. Mm-hmm. Um, this is evidently Iron Man's first time to work underwater because he's like all nervous about being able to like survive under there. But he successfully blows a hatch with his repulsors. He makes it to the elevator shaft ahead of most of the water. He forces the elevator shaft door closed behind him to slow down the water. And then he heads up the shaft to put a stop to the Magia and their new playmates. Um, I guess AIM has more goals than just looting, though, because they're, like, monitoring Iron Man's location as they wait for their vortex suction beam to warm up. Whiplash, meanwhile, is berating Big M. He's, like, yelling at his boss because they are apparently just hiding in a compartment while AIM does their business and wrecks the ship. But Big M points out that their last resort weapon is in this room, and AIM is about to learn all about it. The weapon must involve tilting the ship. Um, AIM had evidently very carefully placed their blasts to control the sinking speed of the ship. So now when the ship starts tilting faster than it should, uh, they start freaking out, and then it starts tilting back the other direction. Sitwell is trying to fight against the tilting, still looking for Iron Man. Where are you, Iron Man? But Whiplash slices through the wall next to Jasper um, at the exact same time that Iron Man enters the room and sees Whiplash holding Jasper up by the collar. But then out of nowhere, a vortex of whirlwind. Remember that vortex suction machine we mentioned earlier? Well, it is vortex sucking Iron Man right through the hull and into um, the hands of AIM. Next-ish, the cataclysmic conclusion in the first incredible issue of Iron Man's own mag. Yay. How long does it take you to recharge an iPhone? Um, you know, I really don't know. That's a good question. I bet you if you just took the little hole in the bottom of the iPhone and connected it to a live wire, it would recharge in seconds. Maybe. 
Yeah. Especially a 1960s iPhone. Yeah. Yeah. That's kind of his new thing now, though, isn't it? This quick charge business. Mm-hmm. I'd be very happy if he stopped having to have charging issues altogether. But Yeah, or at least... I'm getting tired of it. I don't know. Remember, when, get- remember every time Johnny Storm used his fire once, like he couldn't use it again? <laughs> he flames on his hand and he's done for the issue. Yeah. I just don't like how they're solved so randomly. And like for a character who's based on electronics, they're not working at all the mm-hmm. way that electronics work. And they just use it as a means for drama, you know? Like, mm-hmm. hey, insert, insert loss of power here to be continued. Speaking of to be continued, this is to be continued. Tales of Suspense 99's cap was to be continued. So also kind of interesting or weird that the number ones are part two or ten or whatever. Yes. As we go into all of these debut issues, except for maybe uh, Nick Fury and Doctor Strange, I think those actually do start new stories. But the other four are all middle of the road, mm-hmm. you know, storylines. Not, not the current traditional reason to have a number one, mm. you know. But speaking of storytelling, I kind of have to hand it to this issue because there are a lot of elements Mm -hmm. moving in a lot of different directions within like the same physical space of story. And it wasn't hard to follow. No, it was kind of fun. Like there's like these three different things going on. Mm -hmm. It reminded me of Fifth Element. Remember that where they where the there's like there's there's I don't know if you've seen that movie, but I I, I should uh, have seen it. You've not seen that movie? I really should have seen it. I went to go see this one gal uh, uh, when Titanic was all the rage and her family was playing Fifth Element when I picked her up and we went to the movies and oh. them watching Fifth Element is the most Fifth Element I've ever seen. Okay. I need to have seen it. I, I don't know I why. I think I saw that I in the theater like five times. But uh, anyway, there's a scene on a boat, space boat, and like lots of chaos and multiple parties and mm. fun stuff happening. It does seem kind of random that AIM shows up, but then at the same time, it made it more interesting. Yeah, yeah. I, I like their kind of an element of chaos in what the mm-hmm. Maji is trying to do. Mm-hmm. So instead of being just annoying and tropey, it actually helps make the story more interesting. Yeah. Iron Man working underwater did remind me a little bit of that bit in the Avengers whenever it starts out with him working underwater. Uh-huh. Fixing the uh, You're right, though. He's, I guess he's never been underwater. I thought I, he I, talked about it because I read – I think that's a thing he can do normally, right? He doesn't need a special water suit to do water, does he? I don't think so. Um, Jasper Sitwell, he he may be a little bit too confident in his credentials as an authorized qualified S.H.I.E.L.D. agent. <laughs> <laughs> he is very into being a S.H.I.E.L.D. I think he's just proud more than arrogant. But, yeah, he does seem to tote that around as if that's a thing people should care about. Whiplash breaks in. I will thank you to show more respect to an authorized shield agent. Mm-hmm. If you're not recovered, Iron Man, stay back. I am fully qualified to handle Whiplash. That would have been an interesting fight. But <laughs> <laughs> and it still may happen because now Iron Man's gone. Yeah. Quite the cliffhanger to go into Iron Man 1. Yeah. But uh, should we move on to Namor, our last story for this episode? Our last and best story. Okay. Um, wow, you just went with that, huh? Yeah. It's <laughs> call him destiny or uh-huh. call him death, but don't call him just in general. He's a really boring person to talk to. Yeah. Um, all right. In a half-darkened, eerie chamber beneath the icy Antarctic, 
a puzzled submariner hurls himself at a mocking figure he suddenly sees before him, only to find, Namor jumps for him, I missed! Though I struck with a blinding speed of a killer shark, my mysterious foe yet evaded me, almost as if he read my very thoughts. And, um, let's see, Destiny looks like a doofus. That's just what I did, you floundering fool. No matter how swiftly you leap, I shall always be just beyond your reach. That's not actually how he talks, but it is now. Um... (sighs) Stan Lee presents another Leviathan landmark from the pens of Roy Thomas Ryder and Gene Colan artist, forceful inking by Frank Jacoya, fitful lettering by Sam Rosen. And now that you've perused our palpitating credits, it's time to turn the page and share the beginning of Namor's most fateful adventure. Oh, the plaudits earlier on the other credit box. Plaudits are like applause. They're like okay. award- awarding things. Things to make you feel better about what you've done. Anyways, Namor has come face to face with his density. No, destiny. Destiny. And this is not Mystique's wife. This is just some random dude in a green cape and a weird pink hat. Namor saw him in a dream last issue, and he has run across destiny while he is on a journey to see the first Atlantis. Um, they fight briefly at the beginning of this chapter. Destiny's hat shoots ice darts. So that's fun. Yeah. But the ice darts freeze Namor. And that's when Destiny decides it's story time. So he's going to tell Namor the story of how they've met before. Dun, dun, dun. What? You see, back in the day, Destiny was just a mentalist at a traveling sideshow. His name was Mentalo. But don't confuse him with the other guy we knew named Mentolo from the S.H.I.E.L.D. story. No, no, no. Unlike that Mentolo, this guy does have actual mind-reading powers that are actually a part of his story. Um, so one day, reading a book about the history of mind-reading, Mentolo slash Destiny decides that if he goes to Antarctica, he can find his, wait for it, Destiny, and become even more powerful. Um... If you are listening to this, you may already see where this is going because he's going to go to Antarctica, right? So anyways, Mentolo slash Destiny ends up on the very same Antarctic expedition led by, I looked this guy's name up, Captain Leonard McKenzie, Namor the Submariner's very own father. That's another dun-dun-dun. Wow. So they go hiking in the snowy mountains together. They leave behind their people from the expedition. Um, Mentolo and McKenzie, they find some machinery in the ice left over from the lost civilization of the uh, ancients. Um, and this is actually what Mentolo read about that made him want to come here in the first place. So he's all like, let's dig out the machinery. And McKenzie's like, let's go get our people first. And so McKenzie leaves, heads back to camp to get the rest of their team. But Mentolo decides he's a fool and he chips into the ice and frees the dynamo of the machine on his own. He turns the wheel and causes an avalanche to fall, like right on himself. Raw avalanche, it can't end like this. Not when I'm so close, so maddeningly close, it can't. After a while, though, he realizes, hey, I'm not dead. He is in a cavity under the rocks in the ice. He has somehow survived. And near him, uncovered, I guess, in the event, is a weird pink helmet. The same weird pink helmet he is wearing now. And guess what? This increases 
his mental powers. So at this point, Namor is tired of story time and he decides to attack because it's been like four pages of flashbacks. So we're getting something <laughs> interesting. Um, but for some reason, Destiny is glad that Namor attacks. Um, Namor punches the uh, wall of ice behind Destiny and, and busts open this sonic cannon. And Destiny goes and grabs the sonic cannon. He tries to shoot Namor with it. But Namor dodges. He grabs the cannon and just like picks it up and whacks at Destiny with it. But instead of hitting Destiny, he hits the mountain of ice, which brings down, guess what? Another avalanche. Destiny doesn't get hurt by this avalanche, but Namor gets buried under tons of ice and is dead forever. Next-ish, the origin of Namor in a book all his own. It's weird they give him his own book if he's dead. Right? I think it's actually Destiny's book. Oh, no. Do we have to cover that? <laughs> um, I actually really dug this. I thought Did I would you? be bored okay. by the flashbacks because I wasn't uh-huh. really sure I cared who this guy was, but I wasn't bored. The story had me interested. It's very contrived in places, but... Well, it's Gene Colan, so it's pretty. Uh-huh. Um, and it's neat to see Namor's dad, I guess. Yeah, it kind of balanced stuff that I was interested in against uh-huh. the stuff that I wasn't. So I was intrigued. Yeah. A complete history of mind reading. I mean, we've all checked that out at the library. Mm-hmm. Well, I didn't check it out. I just read the mind of the other girl who was reading it. Oh, smart. So, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, I guess Namor is jealous of the Hulk because the Hulk has made a habit of getting covered in mountains and Namor decides it's his turn. Yeah. Boy, not a lot happens in this story, does it? Other than the well, it's giant just flashbacks. flashback. Yeah, it's all yeah. flashback. So this guy, does he even say like, because remember, Namor came over here because he was called. Mm-hmm. After visiting his mom's grave, he just had this urge to come fly over here. And I don't think they address that, do they? Not yet, except that he saw this guy's face in the dream that called him. Right, but this guy knows his dad, not Namor. So right. something We have weird. not yet gotten to the rest of the story. I guess there's more flashback. Well, it says yeah. that number one is going to be his origin, which imagine that, your origin story and your number one issue. What a crazy idea. Yeah. But um, – I guess there's a lot more to Namor's background that we don't know about yet. Okay. Or this helmet, for that matter. Mm, it's a what? very not Where'd great that helmet. Where did come from? Yeah, but okay. It just was there, I guess. <laughs> well, you had the machinery from the ancients. Maybe the helmet oh, is worn. Oh, I see. Yes, of it, course. It, it's just head protection for and when you're working with And he's been stuck here this whole time? So I guess there was like a refrigerator or something? <laughs> just vibing in the ice. Mm-hmm. Um... The letters page did not have a next issue box, but did have a little banner at the bottom on sale February 1st, each in his own full length magazine at last with the um, Iron Man and Submariner title logos. Cool. So that was kind of a full episode. That was a pretty full episode. Um, So next episode, you should definitely come back because we're (laughs) going to talk about Uh. the list up in front of me. Um, All of that came out on January 2nd. So we're going to finish January 2nd with Captain America 100. And then we're going to go into our second week of release, January 9th, with Captain Savage and his Leatherneck Raiders number two with the return of Baron Strucker. Mm-hmm. We're going to see Daredevil 38, which has Doctor Doom on the cover because they've mind swapped. Fantastic 473 guest star Bonanza with Thor and Spider-Man and Daredevil. Wow. Because, spoilers, Daredevil and Fantastic Four, those two issues, are a crossover. Nice. And we're going to wrap up the episode next episode with The Incredible Hulk 
102. So two debut issues next episode. Yay. Where can they find us? They can find us at makearsmarvel.com. You'll find links to our social media on Facebook and Twitter. Follow us on Twitter until we get 1,000 followers and then follow us anyway. Um, all the episodes are on there. You'll find links to the, the cool apps and an RSS feed if you want to plug into your uncool app. And then lastly, there's a contact form or you could write directly podcast at makearsmarvel.com. Um, also, you can follow us individually on Twitter. I am at John Reads Comics and Mike is at Kaiser the Great. Our website has a PayPal link if you want to contribute to the show. Throw some tip in the tip jar. We always appreciate it, but we do not expect it. Our shows are free. Um, and yes, we'll be back next week. So be here for that. And until then, or until, until Dum Dum Dugan dies and Nick Fury replaces him with a robot and doesn't tell him. Make ours marvel. Marvel.